Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I'm so honored to be here with Erin Lane today. We are going to talk about many things, among them motherhood, um, what does that mean, the decision to have children um, by way of our own bodies or create a family through another channel, um, and the choices that come along with that. Erin Lane is a writer and a theologian. She's the author of Someone Other Than a Mother and Lessons in Belonging from a Church Going Commitment Phobe. I love that title. Erin, <laughs> how are you doing today? Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm tired, but happy, happy to be here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're over on the East Coast, so it's much later in the day for you. Um, so Yeah. And I got really um, overwhelmed by... Um, by getting like, mm, yeah, I don't, mm, I got really overwhelmed by my life this week. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. And overwhelmed by sugar and cheese and just lots of good things that in disproportionate amounts make me feel tired and achy. Oh, yeah. I feel you on that one. I tend to have this tradition. We tend to have this tradition in our family where on Saturdays we will kind of go hog wild with food. So we'll start off usually with donuts okay. and do something for lunch that is decadent and rich and um, coma inducing. <laughs> and that continues into dinner. <laughs> and then on Sunday, I kind of wake up with a food hangover, to be honest uh -huh. with you. But it's almost like Saturday feels like a holiday to me. And then I feel really mm -hmm. ready to be clean the rest of the week. Okay. I like that. I like that. So how do you re-regulate after a weekend, a weekend party? <laughs> party <laughs> of the senses. food party. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I feel like, um, so I'm a certified health coach. And so this comes from the lens of kind of the idea that everything in moderation, even moderation in moderation. Hmm. And it also is a chapter or a page or whatever you want an idea from uh, the book of Tim Ferriss. It's called the four hour body. I believe he has many okay. four hour something titles. This is from the four hour body. So I loosely kind of created my own um, eating pattern on a weekly basis after having read that book. And for me, it works because I am a person who I don't do moderation well, right? So if I eat mm. something like a donut, then I want three donuts. And if I eat something like nachos, then I want the whole plate of nachos. So it works really well for me to just give myself one day where I indulge. And then I feel kind of... <laughs> I don't always get to the point where I feel kind of gross and, and nauseous by the end of the day, but sometimes I do. And then it's really easy for me to to wake up the next day and be like, um, fresh fruits, vegetables, eat close to the earth, everything that mm. um, my body knows what it is and knows how to process. It's very easy for me to get right back on track and yeah. feeling better. That's rad. That's a really rad self-awareness um, practice and reflection. And I'm going to take everything in moderation, even moderation with me. Yeah, please do. Yeah. It's yeah, it's such a journey. I find that um, health in general and nutrition is such a bio-individual journey. And I really 
tried so many different diets over the years since I was a little one and just seeing, you know, the saying, speaking of motherhood or even just childhood and parenthood, you, um, Terry Real was saying this. I was listening to Terry Real's book, Fierce Intimacy. He was saying how um, we don't teach our children. They watch us. It was something along the lines how they watch us in our behavior. And that's how they learn. They like see from, from the actions and from our behaviors, not necessarily what we tell them to do, but what they see us doing. And so when I was a little one around five years old, my mom and dad separated and my mom stopped eating. She sunk into a deep, deep depression. And so I quickly followed along with that. And at five years old, I was, I found myself in, in the first therapist chair and, and it was all about food and how I didn't want to eat and I wasn't going to eat. And, you know, I would put food in my mouth and, um, at the dinner table, I would say I'd have to go to the bathroom and I would go spit it out in the toilet mm. to try to avoid eating. So Anyways, where was I going with that? <laughs> I was watching my mom, right? Yeah. She, was, she wasn't eating. She was depressed. And so I was like, there must be something to that, I guess. I can't really remember the thought process behind that other than just emulating her behavior. Hmm. So let's let's bring it back to the conversation <laughs> that I want to have with you today. You recently published Someone Other Than a Mother. This is your second book. Correct. It's my second book that's just me. Yeah. I got to work on a really fun anthology um, called Talking Taboo at the start of my writing career. Oh, I yeah. definitely want to talk about that as well. <laughs> but so, so how did this book come about? What what uh, made you decide to write it? Tell me about the title. I want to hear kind of the, the brainchild of this work. Yeah. So as a writer, I always think about the inciting incident in a story for sure but also in my own writerly consciousness, what's the inciting incident where I'm like, I've got to discover what the what is behind this irritation, right? Usually it's an irritation and it could be a good, curious irritation, or it could be an angry, um, annoying irritation, but it's something, right? An inciting incident that life is going along one way and then something interrupts it in a way that is um, <laughs> not entirely unpleasurable, but quite vexing. And so for me, that inciting incident was after being happily child-free with my partner for 10 years. We unexpectedly fostered and then adopted three school-age girls. And we can talk more about how that happens unexpectedly because plenty of people are like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you have to go through a lot of training and legal work for those things. Um, but yes, it's not, it wasn't the outcome um, we wanted going into the process. Um, we were really hoping for reunification for them and that we would be able to rebound, reset into life as we knew it. And so it was the moment after we adopted and it became legal that a lot of folks in our community, and these weren't our closest friends, but they were kind of people on the periphery got so excited about my life in a way mm. that they never had when I was happily child-free. And I wasn't just happily child-free. Like I was self-righteously child-free. Like I told people like, I am child-free for the common good. I am not having biological children so that I can practice the ministry of availability to other people's children and to myself and to other people. Um, and so I just felt so sad after that initial like, wave of backpats and attagirls wore off mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I felt so sad and lonely that everyone thought this was like an unequivocal good. Felt so sad and lonely that no one gave me this kind of like praise and um, casseroles and um, I don't know, empathy before I became a parent. Um, and then after the sadness wore off, I started to get kind of mad because I thought about all of the women I knew who were still childless and child-free and making families in an unlikely way and thinking about how much I still had to learn from them and how much our community had to learn from them. But these aren't often the people that we sit at the feet of um, and look to as teachers, not for that specific quality about them. It's almost we look to them in spite of sometimes Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they can't relate to us in this one particular way, rather than saying, I think, I think there's something deeply spiritual, um, deeply good for our communities, um, that's worth paying attention to in these people's lives. So I decided to set out to understand what it was about these scripts we've been given socially that one bifurcate a woman's life into a before and after mm-hmm. before she has kids after she has kids. And it's always not always, but traditionally assumed, right, that it's it's an if, not when. Mm. Um, or sorry, it's a when, not if. It's a when you'll become a parent, not if. But then, too, I really wanted to understand and learn from these women who I knew leading big, beautiful lives to say, maybe, maybe it's just a failure of imagination that a lot of us uh, can't, we don't have enough examples or we do, but those examples haven't been brought to light of people living really big, beautiful lives um, without children, quote, of their own. Um, and I just wanted to give people some more imagination for what it looks like if you go off script. Um, and, you know, I was um, completely biased that it looks beautiful, um, that it can look beautiful, uh, and that there are a lot of people already doing this beautiful work in the world. Mm. So, yes, I do want to know more about the story of fostering these three girls and then subsequently adopting them. I'd love to hear how that came about. And I have so many other directions I want to go. And also, I just want to say that I so, I so empathize with this work that you've done, this body of work that you put together and that experience of choosing to be childless and self-righteously. So I I feel like I've been standing (laughs) on my own soapbox and I didn't even realize it until you just Mm. said it right now that I have been standing on my own self-righteous soapbox about my decision not to birth my own children. We Mm. have since um, it's been about five years now, not officially adopted my nephew, my husband's um, nephew. So his sister's son, but he came to live with us when he was about 15 and he's from Mexico. He came here to, to learn English and just to have a different experience in life. Um, and now he's in college. So I really, really empathize with this before and after this kind of like, I mean, you just put it so beautifully, so I'm not going to try to re-say it. Um, but yes, please tell me about this experience of these girls coming into your life and how all of that unfolded. Wow. And it sounds like you have some pretty, pretty rife wisdom about creating unlikely families too. Um, And how joyful, how joyful it can be and hard, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, meeting kids or living under the same roof as older kids, right? I think that's a stigma that, of course, everyone will want a brand new baby Mm -hmm. um, to 
imprint their values and culture and be there from the beginning and be be the starring character in that child's story. Um, and I know, I know biological parents don't assume that. Um, but sometimes that feels like that's the narrative that gets sold um, to us is that parenting older children is less preferable, um, less um, rife with wonder. Um, yeah. Um, plan B rather than the thing some of us really feel suited for um, mm. and really deliciously enjoy. So that's part of the reason my partner and I ended up fostering um the the short of it is we didn't either of us neither of us had a strong desire for children of our own going back to me feeling tired at the beginning of this podcast i have just started describing myself as a low capacity woman and i have less and less shame about saying that out loud like my body's very sensitive i like a lot of autonomy um i have like two good hours in me every day and i've been like this since i was 5 right um, so I just, on the one hand, like physically didn't have a desire to do this, um, thing that was always lifted up in my world as like a superhuman woman's strength. And I'm like, you know, that just seems real ambitious. And I don't, I don't have a real desire for that. I don't have a real imagination for that. And that just sounds really tiring. Um, and just like, I'm not a long distance runner, there is just something about that, the physicality of it, that's actually not, I don't need to test my body in that way to know that my body can do hard things. That's just not a hard thing. I have a lot of imagination or desire for. And then I met my partner and he, right, felt differently about why he didn't have a desire for children or biological children. Um, he worked with children for a living and kind of had that classic teacher, youth group leader vibe where like, I'm with kids all day. I really like to be able to have some buffer um, between time for myself, um, and time for my community. And I just worry that if I didn't have that margin, um, which a lot of parents and caregivers, um, know that without margin, it's really hard to do your own reparenting, um, and your own repair and reset so that you can be a good neighbor in the world. So both of us discerned, I don't think the biological parent thing is our thing, um, but we are really committed to our community. Um, we are really committed to um, kind of that classic religious spiritual calling to love God, love neighbor as ourselves. So we also didn't want to just like only um, hang out with friends who thought and acted and valued what we did. We're like, I don't know, we feel like there's something to be learned about feeling more at home Um with strangers in our community and also making surprising kinship um, with people that we wouldn't naturally rub up against. And so we tried for a time to just be like those really cool friends um, that would like babysit people's children or let them go out on a date night. Um, and for whatever reason, it just didn't, it fell flat. And we tried to do lots of like volunteering in our community and it just felt flat. It just like didn't actually feel like our relationships were deepening um, or changing us or changing the people we actually um, wanted to learn from um, and be beside. So um, <laughs> I think it just dawned on us one day that we both really love our house. Um, we really like homemaking in the um, non-traditional sense of the word, but maybe sort of traditional, like we like cooking and 
I like picking out pillows and um, we're a little bit of neat freaks, but that's not always compatible with like hospitality. But like, yeah, we're sort of like the way for us to enjoy doing this thing in the world is to share this thing in the world or else we're going to become like monsters of curation. Mm -hmm. And so what's, what's something that happens in your home that's not making your own family, but is still deeply rooted in community. Um, and, and fostering was one of those things that we were going to, um, a church at the time that had a lot of foster parents in it that has its own sorted, beautiful history. Um, yeah. And we're like, well, this is one way we'll try it. And we just kept saying yes and yes and yes to each next step um, until we found ourselves with our very first placement, which ended up being the girls we adopted. And the short on that, because I want to hear your beautiful story and your beautiful questions, um, is very quickly their parents' rights were terminated. And very quickly. I mean, you often hear people talk about how long it takes to adopt children in the foster care system, but our experience was the opposite. Um, we had to decide within the first three to six months um, mm-hmm. of knowing these children, if if we wanted to be the people to walk with them on into the future, or if we wanted to kind of help them transition um, and into a new home and into new families and we did some some good old fashioned Quaker discernment, and we're just more compelled by the yeses than the noes. Mm, wow, how old were they when you got them? When we first met them, they were ten, eight, and six. Okay, um, right. And people were like, "That's so great! You kept siblings together." Mm-hmm. And we're like, "This is just a subset. This is just a subset of their family." And even keeping this particular subset together. Like, I just think everyone had a desire for it to be clean and easy and make sense Mm -hmm. um, that we could sort of like brush over the the fissure um, Mm -hmm. that already has happened if a child finds themselves in foster care. Um, But also, like, I often think about the disenfranchised grief of parents we don't talk about um, that whatever kind of family you end up having, actually, whether you're a parent or not, whatever kind of family you end up having, there's always grief about the loss of an imagined future, no matter how realistic, right? We try to be with our expectations. Like there's grief about, I thought it would feel this way. My husband and I thought it would still be just us at this point in our life. And it's not, and it's beautiful. And we still grieve like, Mm -hmm. oh, what would we be doing right now for just the two of us? Where would we live? What would our jobs be? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of grief too in that um, season and and still and still for them and for us for different reasons and a lot of delight, of course. But we talk more about the delight, so I'm less concerned with representing that category of happiness. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. It's, yeah, I can, <laughs> so much about that I empathize with it, in particular when you started to talk about your experience of the before and after of how people treated you and you know as um i guess a a woman in her own right without a child right and then doing this very which it is a noble thing to do it is but it's kind of like well everyone around me i always feel like this and this is part of me being self-righteous and i own that and acknowledge it but everyone around me having their baby showers and their gender reveals and i'm expected to show up time and time again with presents 
you know, for all of these milestones. What about the milestones in my life that don't involve children and, you know, gender reveals and baby showers? Like I always think back to this episode. Are you a Sex in the City fan? Yes, 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 yes. Way back in the early days of Sex in the City, I think Carrie has the same kind of thought and she decides to throw herself a party. I think it's, I want to say for her, shoes or something you know how she loves her shoes uh-huh. and she requires everyone to show up with a present for her for this occasion whatever it was she decided was important enough because she was tired of going again and again to other people's baby showers and milestones to celebrate their choices in life and not having that reciprocated in some way so i always mm-hmm. think about that mm-hmm. especially when you're talking about it in terms of like well this is my decision to to live this life in a certain way and yes, we got Christopher when he was about 15, but, but yeah, it's kind of stopped there with people being like, well, that's such a cool and noble thing. How is that going? Oh, that must be hard to have inherited a teenager. <laughs> and you're, you're speaking to that too, in terms of, you know, the ideal is, and I think you're right. This is a narrative that um, we, maybe some of us blindly consume and culture that it's so much easier to receive a child as a blank slate and put your own stamp, you know, quote unquote, for lack of a better way to say it, of, of characteristics and behaviors on this child and mold them in a certain way. But I have always felt, and I don't know if this is true for you too, Aaron, I have always felt that that level of responsibility from infancy onward to create a human being who is, you know, upstanding, uh, independent, smart, self-reliant without, excuse my language, fucking them up from that young age was yeah. terrifying. Yeah. And I didn't want that responsibility. I never did. I always felt like I wanted to foster, if anything, to create mm. that kind of, um, you know, f- family feel if if that's what we decided to do. But just like you, I never had that that sense of or craving. My mom always used to tell Jorge, my husband, she always used to tell him, oh, she's going to get the biological urge. Just wait when we were in mm. our 20s. Mm. And I never did. So no, because it's not a thing. Yeah. So yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> this biological urge. Oh, yeah. So part of the thing that um, reassured me throughout writing this book is so many of these things that I felt personal shame over, both personal shame and personal pride. But sometimes I'm a bit of a contrarian. So I feel pride on in the things people say are defective about me. Um, right. That's my defense mechanism. So right. If they're saying something like you're just not very maternal, I'm like, that's right. That's right. Motherfucker. I'm not right. <laughs> like, like it's just right. That's I, I think a lot of, a lot of us do that. Um, we take the things that we have felt less than for, and we try to revalorize them. And that's right where the self-righteousness comes out too. Um, is it's like, if you're not going to celebrate it, then I guess I have to like turn up the celebration a notch of myself, which is a really beautiful tactic. Um, I just wish that we didn't always have to convince. We didn't always have to counter. We didn't always have to point out the milestones in our lives, right? That we want to be celebrated for whether parent or not. Um, like when you're going off script, yeah, you just kind of have to turn up the volume a little louder on your life. If you want people to come and surround you, 
um, in a way that they do for the more traditional stuff. So that makes so much sense to me that you and I would do that. Um, and that's part of what I loved about writing the book is that so many of these things that I'm like, why am I not celebrated for it? Oh, cause this is like a systemic thing that the patriarchy has sold us for some time. Um, and I don't think I even use that word in the book, but that's, that's what these scripts are that essentially say the best and brightest life for a woman is motherhood. And of course, modern women can do other things. But at the end of her life on her deathbed, that's probably going to be the thing that she says, like, was the greatest love of all. And that creates such shame for women who don't mother or don't mother traditionally. It can, I should say. It can create such shame um, because then it's like this fear of missing out. Even if I lived a life that I really savored and that I really could stand behind at the end, um, is there a part of me that was not fully realized? Is there a part of my love um, that I didn't? I didn't explore or didn't understand as fully as parents. Well, there's no way to prove that, right? There's no way to disprove that with these, with these shitty scripts. Um, and then on the other hand, if a parent hears that like motherhood at the end of your life, is going to be the thing you can hang your hat on. Then it's also really shaming <laughs> if motherhood is hard and if you don't like it, um, if your children forget your love, um, if yeah, you, like it as one thing among many, or as I like to say, you're vocationally polyamorous mm -hmm. and people just want you to like, keep coming back to that one relationship as like the primary one. And you're like, it's one of many I enjoy. Um, so all that's to say each chapter in the book is structured around, um, a shitty script. And I try to investigate, like, where did that idea come from? And the very first chapter is your biological clock is ticking. Because I feel like that's the idea, both in like the natural world and from the world I come from, the American Christian world, um, that sort of is the biggest hurdle to get over. It's like some version of, well, you're wired to mother. Mm -hmm. um, so there must be something broken about you if you mm -hmm. don't do it biologically. Or the Christian version. Um, be fruitful and multiply, you're called to mother. Um, and so if you don't want to do it, there's something devilish or deviant about you. Um, and so finding out that the biological clock, the reproductive biological clock was like an idea invented in 1978 by this journalist for the Washington Post, who was trying to prove that no matter the great strides women had made um, during the liberation movement, that at the end of the day, they were bound to want children and men didn't have to worry about it. And he was the first one that invented this term in the context of women's reproductive life. So obviously we know there's a reproductive window for women, mm -hmm. um, but never have there been proof that there is an intrinsic biological desire for children and individual women that will go off at a certain point that will go off at all. Um, we know as a species, it makes sense for some of us, for most of us to reproduce, but on the individual level, it's so much more um, wily and complex and delicious. And we just brush over that when we continue to perpetuate these pervasive cultural sayings that some of them just blatantly aren't true. And most of them uh, are not true for everyone. And so can be quite shaming when we digest them. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, though, that we kind of, and I mean, this goes beyond the topic at hand of motherhood, but that we just consume these narratives without fact checking where they actually come from, if they're actually true. And, 
in a sense, they become psychologically true. And then as a result, if we don't follow that narrative, you're right, shame tends Mm. to follow. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly felt that myself, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I different? And also like you have worn it as a badge of honor, but there's some part of me, this, you, you started to speak to end of life. And this is something that often comes up for me when I think about, you know, deathbed regrets, uh, what does the last decade of my life look like? And I think about this idea from the standpoint of how do we take care of our elders now? What does it look like for us to take care of our aging parents? Well, in my experience, having gone through watching my grandmother pass away in in the past, uh, she passed away right before 2020, 2019, right before COVID hit and she was suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. It was, it was horrible to watch. Right. But there was a period of time um, where she was placed in an institution in a home. Mm -hmm. And that was such a visceral shocker for me to witness my parents doing, and especially my mom, because it was my um, maternal grandmother. And I felt such judgment towards my mother for doing this. I felt such um, there was such a fissure between my mother and I hmm. when she made this decision to, to put my grandmother in a home. If I could zoom out of that judgment a little bit, I could understand how that might be have been the right choice for her in terms of this place maybe gave her the care that my mother couldn't give her at the time. So there's so many more ways to look at it than this one narrow judgmental lens, but also wanting to honor, you know, my experience of having grown up in this nuclear family and thinking, oh, we're going to take care of each other. That's what I'm being taught here. We're going to take care of each other. That's what family is, right? We take care of each other. When we're young, you take care of me. When you're old, I take care of you. Mm. I thought it was this reciprocal thing. And so my fear around my choice to not have children is really deeply rooted in what does my end of life look like? Will Mm. I die alone in, in a you know, in a home somewhere. And then I'm thinking about, okay, my parents are in their seventies now. And what does, what does their aging and death care, what does that look like when they get to that place? So I don't know if there's a question in there, but I just love to, to get your thoughts, experience, you know, on that topic. Yeah. Well, I have good news for you. Um, The research shows that good government and good friendship are better protectives against misery and old age than one's kin. Mm -hmm. And it goes, it flies in the face of the script, you'll regret not having kids when you're older, because who will take care of you, right? That's a question that's often asked of, um, especially by older folks of the younger generation, um, that, you know, I think comes out of a place of wanting, of wanting um, us to be tethered. And not realizing that there are actual better strategies of social safety nets um, that make it so um, that regardless of what your relationship to your family is, you can thrive in old age. But then also, I'm deeply heartened by the fact that friendship mm-hmm. is proves better for uh, elderly people's health and well-being than their family system or structure does. And so I think if we knew that, if we believed that, we would spend so much more time um, creating rituals and sacraments and um, um, 
even like legal, I'm so curious about what I'm going to want to do with this. Like when I'm 10 years older and have a little bit more capacity. Um, but yeah, like commitments of friendship to say, okay, like when you get older, will you be my person? Um, in the same way, right. That we do with marriage or that we implicitly do or expect with family. Um, and, and I just think, again, this is one of those areas where we just have like a paucity of imagination where there are actually relationships in front of us right now that could be those those safety nets against uh, loneliness in old age. And I will mention that for the childless, loneliness peaks in their 30s and 40s, not when they're older. Mm-hmm. So this is the time, I'm 38, um, where it is so discordant with friends that are doing the nu- nuclear family thing, that are often doing the small children nuclear family thing, It's when they retreat into the domestic sphere and I see them less. Um, I feel like we have less in common. I feel like we're not uh, sharing the same rhythms and schedules. Um, It's just harder to connect. And for childless people in particular, um, they've been sold the myth that they're going to be old and lonely. But actually, right, loneliness is feeling discordant with your peers during this like highly intensive family friendly time. Um, Mm. And I think that's both discouraging if you or your listeners find yourself during that period, but also heartening that it won't feel this way forever, that they have shown that like older parents um, have friendships um, of the deepest are as deep in quality as childless folks do. So it kind of comes back around, but it takes some time. And again, it's those friendships in old age um, that, create for flourishing and often more lasting health benefits um, than family. So I love that research. I mean, it helps relieve me of any expectation that my kids will take care of me when I'm older. Mm. Um, And it helps me say like, I get to, I get to cultivate relationships with trustworthy people Um, And sure, maybe that's an incentive for me to keep making friends that are outside of my generation, Mm -hmm. um, both older and younger, right? I just think, again, like we could be so much more creative um, about the kind of flourishing we want to create for ourselves and other generations um, if we took this focus off the nuclear family being all things to all people and actually started diversifying our sources of strength and relationship. Mm, that's so beautiful. I love that. It makes me think of the blue zone and, and, um, which is, I believe it's a book. I remember studying about the blue zones, which are particular pockets or, um, cultures where people tend to live longer with, with more ease because of, yeah, because of their community around them. Typically it is, um, related to, this idea of having community and having support and having friendships and um, among other things, of course, that has to do with nutrition and things along those lines. But the obsession that we have in this country with nutrition and and how it translates to, um, you know, aging with ease, I don't, it doesn't really make sense to me. It doesn't really add up. But if you look at that as compared to other cultures around the world that are more community-based and have more, um, you know, there's more like socially accepted as we age 
places for older people to be and it's revered and um, it's just part of the culture to, to get old. It's, it's not like, it feels like to me here that we do have this very lens and narrative of thinking about old people being kind of put away out of mind, out of sight in, in Mm. an institution. And unfortunately that's been just my experience with this one particular recent death, but yeah, I love, I love that. It's good news. Thank you for that. I feel much better. I'm glad we (laughs) talked about it. (laughs) Well, and just to share the wisdom of one of my friends, Lisa, who I interviewed for the book, like one of her favorite things to say is like, you can have children without having children. Mm -hmm. And I think from what I know of the blue zones, right, there's lots of ways for people in their old age to interact with children Mm -hmm. that aren't their grandchildren. Um, And it's a win-win. It's a win for them um, as elderly folk. And it's a a win for the children to be around other adults in their community who um, they can develop friendships with and create safety with um, and get curious about. And I, and I just think, yeah, again, we just assume that there is an assumption um, that if you don't have kids, right. Again, even our language, then you are childless and you're like, listen, I don't have kids of my own, but that doesn't mean I don't have a relationship with kids or I won't have a relationship with kids when I'm older. Um, And some of those kids might very well be real sources of, intimacy and curiosity and delight. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's such a nice reminder. I love that. I'd like to switch gears now and talk a little bit more about, you know, our current cultural landscape, what we're seeing in terms of motherhood choice to be a mm. mother, um, you know, women's rights in general, it's feeling really, it's been feeling really heavy on my mind in particular, uh, just having voted for general elections in my area and and feeling like there's these very um, dichotomous messages coming from each side of the political spectrum and feeling like, whoa, what do I do with this? This feels, um, it feels almost like an attack on on womanhood to me and, and my rights. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I think this book is, is so salient and so prescient in terms of this topic and I'd love to chat with you more about that. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say it abortion in the United States, you know, turning back Roe v. Roe v. Wade. And um, I think about having this conversation with my mother when I was in, I think I was in high school. She told me about, and I know she'd be okay with me sharing this. She told me about um, having to go to Mexico to have an abortion in, I think it was this, I want to say sixties um, and how scary that was for her, how dangerous it was for her, how, um, you know, it was kind of like this, they drove over the border at night. It was very clandestine. It was, it could have ended a lot worse. Luckily she was okay and everything worked out, but I mean, it feels like, is that what we're returning to? Do I need to, do we need to be worried about this? Hmm. Well, um, I'm worried, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm, I'm a fearful person. I'm fearful every day about all the things. Um, but I do think there's this stark realization that we live in a mother venerated woman phobic country. And that's sort of the paradox that is hard to wrestle with that we like mothers, but we don't like women. 
And that's a gross generalization, but right. Our policies, um, our policies are like incredibly offensive maternal mortality rate. Um, even worse rate for women of color are terrible paid family leave policies. Um, again, a lot of that good government that can protect you against misery and old age, we've sort of left to private enterprises um, to patchwork um, a solution for people rather than guaranteeing that everyone can age with as much ease um, as they can or desire. And so there's often like the rhetoric of family-friendly America Um, but then it's a very family hostile place. Um, and, and if that wasn't apparent, the overturn of Roe v. Wade made it even more so. And I think that's just another part of this book that I hope, I hope gives women back some agency that they might be feeling is in short supply right now to reclaim co-authorship of their story. And I don't say authorship because I don't believe that like we can destine everything about our lives. Um, I don't think choice is um, foolproof, right? (laughs) There are lots of things that happened to me that I didn't choose, Mm -hmm. um, but I can always choose to like participate with my life. Um, rather than feeling as if I'm a blank slate on which things are happening to. And, and I think that's that life with and not to um, that I really hope this book inspires that I do think motherhood, if you have, if you have the privilege and the means and the resources is better discerned than destined. And I want to keep having this conversation where we say like, it's okay Um, It's okay to not feel what you're supposed to feel about motherhood, whether you're doing it or not, Um, whether you're in the, you know, dualistic before or after, which I personally think is bollocks. Um, Like, it's okay. It's okay to not feel what you're supposed to feel traditionally defined. But what then, but what then do you want to do? Um, How then do you want to live? How then Do you want to move with your particular desires while also taking care of who's here? And I think that's the thing. That's the thing I I feel pretty, pretty strongly about. And I would hang my hat on at the end of the day is I really firmly believing, believe in taking care of who's here. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and because I'm a low capacity woman that meant I couldn't also have children of my own. I couldn't also have biological children and show up in the world the way I wanted to. It just didn't feel like it would have integrity. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we need to be more and more honest with women in this mother venerated woman phobic country about how hard it is, um, how hard it is just to do the work of being human right now. Mm-hmm. Um, how hard it is, as I said earlier, to reparent ourselves um, regulate ourselves, show up in the world. So we aren't doing violence to other people because of our own unprocessed shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know from a lot of women who opted out of having biological children, that it is an act of deep hope and it is an act of deep faith. It's not just this idea like the world is shit and I don't want to bring another human life into this, you know, hellhole. I mean, 
plenty of people have said that to me too, but I think it comes from a deep desire to do repair work Mm -hmm. um, that they simply don't think they'd have the margin for Mm -hmm. if they were also um, not sleeping through the night right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, one is not better or worse than the other, but I do think we haven't stressed enough um, the hopeful, faithful, creative, courageous um, option choice to, if it is a choice, opt out of parenthood, traditionally defined in order to really focus your capacities on who's here. So I hope that's something that people, people take away from the book. It's a hard time to be a woman Mm. and it's okay. It's okay to embrace your limits. That's a fine way to make a choice too. Mm. Yeah. I think you're speaking to the question I was going to ask you next and actually my last question for you, but I'm going to ask it anyways, because I'm curious if you want to add on anything to this or if the answer answer will change. And the answer or the question is, what do you imagine is the best possible outcome of this book for a reader, for women, for our culture? Hmm. less shame and more celebration of those milestones you talked about earlier that are the things we want to be celebrated for that feel like the expressions of our best and brightest selves that may or may not be motherhood. And I really want us to start noticing um, how we can start celebrating the under-celebrated about a woman's life, but then also start re-narrating for other people when we have the capacity, because again, most days I don't, to like reframe when someone says, hey, I bet you're so tired from parenting all day. And I'm like, no, I'm tired because I ate cheese yesterday, right? Like just continually when we feel like we have the capacity to just keep pushing back on those 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 cultural assumptions about the all-intensive mom, um, or about the like all self-care all day childless lady, right? <laughs> like, like, hey, this is actually what my life looks like. And if you're interested, I would like to re-narrate for you how I narrate um, who I am and how I show up in the world. Um, and then please tell me about you because I'm probably making some assumptions about you. I mean, I've caught myself more than a handful of times since this book has come out kind of saying daft things to other people in conversation. Mm. Um, And I'm like, okay, I need to keep going back and keep getting curious um, about the I I'm talking to and not do that universal youing um, that often just makes all of us feel small and less connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's one more thing I wanted to say to you because you ask really beautiful, lovely questions and I appreciate how much you also are transparent about mm. your own story. It's really great. Thank you. And because I ate cheese yesterday, I'm not even <laughs> lactose intolerant, but I can't remember it. Um, Brain fog. Well, yeah. no, I, I feel like this is making me want to say one more thing on that topic and maybe whatever you were going to say would come up Okay, and okay. then we can wrap it up. But that is to say that... Um, I've noticed that I also do that, you know, I place a lot of judgment or ideas about what somebody's life may or may not look like. And I might idealize it without fact checking that. And I think this relates to, for me, it does anyways, this topic that I feel 
is so important and also makes me feel very like, oh, I should sit down, shut up and listen, which is that a white privileged woman like me doesn't really want to be, um, doesn't, doesn't really have a place to have a voice right now. And I think there's so many layers to that statement that I say to myself that come from childhood, um, that come from culture at large, that come from a, a movement to really raise up indigenous BIPOC voices, which is so important, but it has me kind of like questioning my own self-worth. And I don't even know, even, even me saying that feels like, oh my God, I, I can't even say that. That doesn't feel right to say either because that feels like it comes from a place of privilege as well to be able to say that. Um, does that make sense? So there's a, there's a lot of like, uh, 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 should I speak up? Should I not? Should I speak up? Should I not? And I was expressing this to a friend the other day and, and she was like, you know, if I stopped myself from expressing my healing in this way, because she's a healer also, um, you know, I have to strip myself of all of these categories that I put myself into and recognize that I have a healing to offer, regardless of what package I came in, regardless of what my socioeconomic status is, and that there is somebody out there that needs to hear what I have to say and that will benefit from what I have to say. And that this is so much more, such a more loving way to come to our fellow humans and create community than the fear that comes from, it's not my time to speak up. I shouldn't say that because I have no place. Mm. Um, and the shame that comes along with that. <sighs> okay. So that's what I was thinking of when you were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the only thing I would add to that is I get it. And I think again, that's, that's the beauty um, of white women doing their work. Um, but also knowing the historical context for a lot of the discrimination and oppression that women and BIPOC and other marginalized groups have experienced, because what knowing the historical context does is helps us see when we are feeding into a trope mm. and helps us see when we are showing up as our true embodied selves. Um, and so I just think both, both knowing about the systemic oppression of any group is so helpful for me not replicating that and moving with awareness of my racialized content and my racialized identity and community. Um, just like I move now with more awareness of my childless, child-free, unlikely family identity and community um, so that yes, I will still get things wrong, um, but I'm doing so um, from a place of like deep reflection and rest and willingness to make repairs. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that's why I loved researching this book to be like, listen, it's not me. It's not me. Um, but I have a part to play now mm -hmm. in, in this healing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, I think that's why that I wanted to say that is because it's, it's so much more about the healing than it is about, to me, it feels like this slip into this narcissistic view of myself um, and what privilege I do or don't have, but rather, yes, knowing the historical context and also 
um, to just give ourselves permission to try and to say, I'm sorry. And how could I do that better? Yes, 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 yes. I'm such a fan of apologies. Yes. (laughs) And such a fan of the offers to make repair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's been such a joy to speak with you, Erin. I, you know, I always say, oh, this is my last question, but I do like to ask, I like to hear you say how people can find you where it's best to connect with you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, primarily Instagram. My handle is Hey Aaron Lane. That's where I do social things. Um, and then I also have a website, AaronSLane.com, where you can find other things I've written around the web. Um, and you can also sign up for my newsletter there, which you might really like this. It's about celebrating the less shiny milestones of a life well lived. So really trying to be like, I know. We get geeked out by weddings, babies, and white picket fences. But let me tell you about the joy of like naming your need with freedom. Let's Mm. celebrate that milestone in my life today. Right. And so it's just kind of a cheeky reframing of what it means to be in a capital A adult Mm. um, without using the verb adulting, which I don't believe in. It's been such a refreshing, enlightening, intelligent conversation. You are so articulate. I love listening to you speak, Erin. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for your deep thoughtfulness. My pleasure. Well, everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, (laughs) you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, So Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media. Don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic, musical, genius, Drew Lovern, thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show, only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks, you guys. You make my world go round. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about right we're sharing information so that we're better um so that we're inspired so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world living on this planet to the best of our ability sharing information and inspiring one another and that's my hope that's my hope for the show take care <laughs>